0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Alan, and uh, it's just delightful to be able to kick off our Philippians series, uh, Pursuing Resilient Joy Together. One of the things that has made me grumpy over the last three months is the absence of televised sport. And uh, I realized that actually I gained inordinate joy from particularly Saturday mornings, getting up early, I'm a soccer guy. I enjoy many sports, but especially love MLS soccer and British Premier League soccer. And the absence of that on Saturdays has actually robbed me of joy, unfortunately. And I heard about a month ago that uh, the German League had started, even though they were playing to empty stadiums. Uh, But man, I found a channel that showed the German League and got up early on the Saturday morning. And I was doing my sermon prep, watching soccer as these guys played. And when they scored a goal, they'd do these, these sort of air high fives. And the coach and the janitor in this massive stadium of 60,000 people would be clapping. It was just weird. But I, it was like all was right with the world. And my wife came through with coffee and she just said, I think we need to talk about your relationship of joy with sport. And that's the reality each of us have found that our levels of joy have been really unhealthily connected in many ways to some great things, but things that actually have been put in charge of our joy. How about you? What's that thing that the absence of it? Perhaps it's going to the mall or your favorite coffee shop or or restaurant. Perhaps it's your retirement account. Uh, Perhaps it's, it's just a rhythm of exercise and work. The absence of those things It doesn't just make us feel a little sad it actually robs us of joy and we realize oh God I have a joy problem well that's what the book of Philippians deals with probably more than anything else Uh, it's called often the letter of joy Uh, joy is mentioned 16 times in it and it's it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul from a prison in Ephesus to uh, the church in Philippi which uh, is in Macedonia, Eastern Europe. It was actually the first church that the Apostle Paul planted in, in Eastern Europe. And uh, he's writing to them, obviously from prison, uh, with such affection and such encouragement and such resilient joy. He is a model of resilient joy. And we find ourselves asking, what was the secret of Paul's joy? And how can we access something of that resilient joy, that unsinkable buoyancy. Uh, Philippians is is a thank you letter primarily because the church in Philippi had uh, sent a financial gift to the Apostle Paul. In those days, if you were in prison, uh, you didn't have supplies, you didn't have food, and and so you relied on friends and family. And so they send this uh, leader in the church called Epaphras hundreds of miles, not only to give a financial gift but actually to stay with Paul and be in Paul's words a brother a worker a soldier and a messenger he just comforts Paul and Paul is so full of gratitude to this this church one of the things I love about this because Paul writes four prison letters this is the only prison letter in which there's no correction all of the others he's he's correcting some sort of doctrine that's gone off or some sort of practice this is the only one where there's no correction there's just encouragement there's affection And there's joy. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses as we dive in. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, and praise of God. What was the secret of Paul's resilient joy? First thing that we find here is that there was a deep gratitude in his heart, and it was a gratitude for many things, but in particular, he had deep gratitude for their partnership in in the gospel. Uh, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with with joy. Paul is saying that that I always remember you in prayer with thankful joy. You can imagine the, the smile lines on this creased old face of the apostle as he pictured and prayed for every person by name, and he prayed for them with such gratitude they brought joy to his heart joy to his face even as he was in in prison as he rem- remembers them name by name this is so basic in terms of rehearsing joy but the rehearsal of gratitude is a rehearsal of joy the apostle paul would speak later in philippians 4 about joy being the act of rejoicing In other words, it's not just an emotion that we feel. It's not just happiness. It's actually rejoicing with gratitude. And here we see him doing that in in prayer. He's isolated. He's dependent. He's falsely imprisoned. He's longing to be with them. He's dependent upon them for survival, but, but he's joyful. And at the heart of that joy is a prayer of, Of gratitude you know in the in the vine of our prayer life I find that the vine of my prayer life doesn't grow naturally towards gratitude it tends to grow more towards petition oh Lord please help it tends towards lament and I honestly believe that lament is vital at this time who could not lament the pain in our nation at this time, lament is, is, is vital. But it often grows towards lament and petition and even confession. Lord, I'm so grumpy. I'm sorry I'm so grumpy. Lord, please won't you change this situation so that I can be less grumpy. And actually the practice of, of, of gratitude here is actually rehearsing joy. He's finding things to be Thankful for, as the as the psalmist in Psalm 103 said, "Bless the Lord, O my soul." He spoke to his soul and forget not his benefits. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with loving kindness. Paul is is forgetting not the benefits of of the Lord. And think about his particular prison situation in Acts 16, where you read about the planting of the church in Philippi. Uh, There are these amazing salvation moments. Firstly, there is a lady called Lydia, who's an Asian lady from Thyatira, who's in the fashion industry. She is wealthy. She's got two houses uh, in Thyatira and also in Philippi. And Paul comes and actually meets her at a women's Bible study and preaches the gospel. The Lord opens her heart. She opens her home. She's saved and the church is planted in her home. And next thing he meets this, A Greek slave girl who's actually a fortune teller she's demon-possessed and this time the gospel just comes with great power and she's set free and it's an amazing amazing salvation but because of her salvation her owners lose their income and so they start a riot and Paul and Silas actually get imprisoned for setting her free in the name of Jesus And we find them in the middle of the night, Acts 16, singing hymns of praise. They were grateful, not for their prison necessarily, but they were rehearsing with gratitude the goodness of God, singing praise. And in the midst of it, there's an earthquake. And the chains rattle and they break. The prison bars break. And God does something powerful. And Acts 16 tells us that the Roman jailer is saved too. Now Paul finds himself in another prison. And I bet you he would have been tempted to, what were those songs that we sang? (laughs) To ask that the Lord would do a, a miraculous jailbreak again. But there was no prison break, no earthquake, no chains rattling. And Paul is still in prison. And yet he is grateful I wonder if we could think of the situation, the relationship, the thing that feels like prison, like confinement, that as much as we pray, it it just doesn't break. We, we, We find ourselves in isolation, or we've been demoted because of financial issues in the company, or we're without work, or we're in a difficult marriage or difficult family situation. feels like a prison, perhaps even. Uh, as your desire to see racial reconciliation and justice come, it's just it's it's happening too slow for you. It feels like like a prison. And as we trust God for these things, can we still find the heart of Paul to say, Do "You know what? I am going to be grateful for the goodness of God. I'm going to remember His salvation. I'm going to remember His His His, his presence." his promises to me I'd like the situation to change but actually while I'm in the situation I am rehearsing gratitude and therefore rehearsing joy and Paul is not just grateful he's he's grateful for for partnership I'm thankful for your partnership in in the gospel that's what he says genuinely thankful for the fact that they were financially partnered with him, relationally partnered with him. Uh, think of it, they were willing to be associated with a guy that many thought was a criminal. There was partnership, and partnership is a, is a wonderful word. It's more than just friendship. It's, it's, it's actually like an intimate family business. It's the word kinanea. which which means an intimate family business. In other words, they were shared investors in the gospel. They shared in the risks and the rewards of the gospel. Imagine even Epaphras being given this money and being told to make a dangerous trip hundreds of miles from Philippi all the way to Ephesus to give him the gift and then stay with him. That's an incredible picture of, of partnership. They weren't just friends. It says they were partners in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This gospel mission, this gospel enterprise, they shared in its risks and its rewards, in its privileges and its pain. Beloved, I think that we can at times confuse partnership with friendship. Friendship is a beautiful thing. And friendship is uh, a thing that I think is a real strength of Southlands. Uh, We are known for our hanging out in the lobby, chatting. We're known for our backyard barbecues and you know our road trips to places and just being people who are friends. And that's why we've struggled during this time. We've longed to be able to express our friendship. But but partnership is deeper than, than friendship. What we see is actually partnership is quite formal. There's a commitment to it. He says, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, there's a moment at which partnership begins, where you define the relationship and you you say, we're not just friends, I am committed to you, I am getting into this gospel enterprise, I'm an investor, I'm sharing in its risks and in its rewards. And I want to ask that during this time where actually we have drifted geographically and relationally, that this is a time to renew our partnership together in the gospel. I think the danger of being able to get up and be in your PJs, make pancakes and sit and listen, is that we can move from partners in the gospel to consumers of the gospel. But actually Paul calls us back. To a shared investment of our time of our treasure of our talent and that means risk i've talked to some people that long to be back together with the people of god and others that have been honest enough just to say i've kind of cocooned it's been cool just just being in my home with my family without any pressure to be places without any pressure to have to serve on a serve team and there is a call to Renew our partnership this day in the gospel. The defense and confirmation of the gospel. Probably you're going, what's this got to do with joy, Alan? I thought this was a message on joy. Now you're talking about commitment. Do you know, our unwillingness to commit to gospel partnership actually robs us of joy because the gospel becomes all about us. And we cease to enjoy the risks and the rewards of being together with the people on mission. I find such a joy in committing to a people, committing to a mission, sharing in the risks and sharing in the rewards. And so let's rehearse gratitude. But let's renew partnership in the gospel. Second thing that brings the Apostle Paul such joy is, is there's a confidence that God is with him and God is with them and that he's at work. You know, the book of Philippians is like one of those coffee cup promise books. There, there's so many incredible promises, you know, to, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's chock full of these promises that go on coffee cups. And, and this is another one. Verse 6, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. Paul has a joy because he's confident in the work of God. So we know this church began well. You've heard about these incredible salvations of Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer. And these became unlikely pillars in the life of the church. But then they began to hit some speed bumps and there's been some heresy. There's been some teachers of the gospel that have been peddling the word of God for profit, for money, while Paul is in prison. There's been some relational conflict between leaders. And there is a temptation in this church to think that God has gone to sleep on the job. We started so well, but now... I don't know is this really worth it this is hard and the very guy who led the charge is now in prison and we have all these counterfeit gospel preachers and there's relational tension and there's persecution what brings Paul joy and what should bring you and I joy is that God has not gone to sleep on the job God is not just a good starter he's a good finisher he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it that confidence should bring us joy in the midst of trial and that's got a a personal outworking for us that we 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 realize that salvation is not because of our work but it's because of god's work when jesus cried out on the cross it is finished he was saying actually The work that is going to justify you and reconcile you to God is mine. It's not yours. I've finished it. And you can rest in my finished work that I will never condemn you if you trust me. I will never leave you or forsake you. Even if you are faithless, I will be faithful to you because I have finished the saving work needed to bring you to God. And that should cause you and I just incredible joy the confidence that he who saved us will never stop working in our lives salvation is not just a past tense thing Jesus has saved us he is saving us and he will save us he is at work it also has an application for us together as a church that that God has not stopped working in us even though things are difficult in our day and age, that he's at work in our church, he's at work in the world. And Paul says, he who began the good work will complete it until the day of Christ. In other words, he is talking about our end time theology, our eschatology, that actually God's work won't start strong and then sort of peter out towards the end times it'll get stronger and stronger and stronger picture God as a road worker and the church as his road it's saying actually he's going to complete what he began the road of the church the highway of holiness is actually going to get better and stronger and smoother even as things get more and more turbulent and sometimes Our eschatology our end time theory robs us of joy I've heard during this tough time so many people come to me with a sense of like man it's doomsday things are getting dark and it does feel like doomsday doesn't it but they are very focused on who's the mark of the beast and who is the Antichrist and I just want to say man As we anticipate the return of Christ, are we more conscious of the Antichrist than Christ himself? It's Christ Jesus who is at work in us. And until he returns, he will continue to work. As the world gets darker and more confused and more turbulent, the church is built strong, steady, An overcoming church is what Jesus is coming back for. And this should actually give us joy, not rob us from joy. We need a robust expectation of Jesus' return. And yes, we need to be wary and aware of the devil and his schemes. But let's be far more focused on Christ than the Antichrist. He is not asleep on the job. He is coming back for an overcoming church. And then it has an application in the way we are being sanctified. So we talked about salvation, we talked about the church, but there's an element of God working in each one of us through difficulty to make us more like Jesus. And I think some of us, probably all of us, have been become so painfully aware of how un like our response has been to this situation. And we can get to a place where we just go, Lord, are you even at work? I mean, I'm just so discouraged with myself. Beloved, take joy and courage that Jesus is graciously at work in you and I. I think of that great sculptor, Michelangelo. In his statue of David, someone asked him, How did you carve such a beautiful statue out of this block of granite? And he he just said, I chipped away every piece that did not look like David. I want to say the father is like a master sculptor who is chipping away every piece of our lives and characters that does not look like Jesus. He's at work. He's not asleep on the job. So let's take courage and joy, even when we get discouraged by ourselves, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And then finally, we see that Paul got inordinate joy from affection. He says, I I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Sometimes Paul gets a bad rap, doesn't he? He, he, He's described often as the sort of hard, harsh, austere, impersonable man. And yet he's he's affectionate. He says, I hold you each in my heart. I pray for you uh, by name. And his prayer is just as he holds them with such affection that their love is may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so that your love would glorify Jesus. That's what he writes. Joy from affection. I think that's why this season has been really hard because we see one another and we long to be affectionate to one another, but the constraints don't allow that. I've struggled with that longing just to give a good sideways hug to someone, a high five, a holy kiss. Because affection actually wants to bear fruit in action. And this is what Paul is is longing for. You know, Jonathan Edwards, in his book called Religious Affections, says that we have a kind of suspicion of affection, that it's just emotionalism. But he says when when the Apostle Paul talks about affection, it's not just emotion. It's a binding up of both the mind conviction and the emotion resulting in action. In other words, in the word affection is the word affect. In other words, it's an emotion and it's a conviction that changes, that moves us, that affects the way we live. And that's what Paul is feeling towards this church. That's why he's writing a letter. And that's what he's asking of them, that your emotion and your conviction would result in action that brings glory to, to Jesus. That the gospel would be made visible in the way we love. Can I ask you to think for a moment of the affection of Christ? I long for you with the affection of Christ. The affection of Christ wasn't just an emotion. Jesus loved us so much, and his conviction of our need as sinners and sufferers was so deep that it moved him to action in the cross. Affection is deep emotion, strong conviction that moves us to action. And when we come to Jesus for forgiveness and for mercy and for help, we are coming to a God who loves us with deep affection. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. I want you to think about the deep affection of Christ, I think sometimes when we come to him for forgiveness and for help and for healing, we think of him almost like one of those pharmacists at the CVS that kind of dishes out the, the pill with a very sort of sterile little bit of judging, oh, liver tablets, you must have been indulging in fatty foods and wine too much, you know, and he dishes it out, but without any sense of joy dane Auckland, in his beautiful book humble and lowly that that talks about jesus affection for sinners and sufferers says when we come to jesus we are not to think of him like an impassionate pharmacist we are th- to think of him rather like a doctor who has spent his whole life coming up with a cure for malaria and travels thousands of miles to a jungle where people are dying of malaria and think of his brokenheartedness when people are dying and not taking his medicine and think of his incredible joy when people actually believe in his medicine and start to take it and start to get healed the incredible joy that this doctor feels he says that is the way jesus feels when we come to him for forgiveness mercy and help you say is that in the bible think of hebrews 12 that jesus christ for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame what was that joy the joy was that we would actually come to him receiving his mercy and his healing and his forgiveness and that would bring him Huge, huge joy. Dane Auckland says, When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. So, how, in Paul's words, do we love with Christ's affection? And how is that good for our joy as we land? How do we love in a way that's both emotional, that's both with conviction, with discernment and also with with action? And why is that good for our joy? Well, firstly, because it takes us out of self-absorption. Loving others takes us out of self-absorption. Someone said that a man wrapped up in himself is a very small package indeed. I was watching a documentary on Garth Brooks, that famous country artist, and one of the things he said is that my mama taught me early on that whatever I do, I should be invested in something bigger than myself. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Paul is saying. Just hey man, there's joy in being invested in something and someone bigger than yourself. That's where the joy comes from, but also the affection of Christ, that emotion. That conviction and that action actually takes us beyond our natural language of love. What do I mean? Well, very practically, you might be uh, a very affectionate person in terms of demonstrations of public affection. You just love to hug people and high five them. And the gift of human touch is huge. But actually, at the moment, Jesus wants to furnish you with a kind of love that is practical. Where maybe you can't hug, but actually you drop off some groceries. You call someone up and say, can I mow your yard?" Your Jesus is enlarging our love. Perhaps you are someone that's super practical and you love in a practical, active way. But actually what Jesus is calling you to do is to sit and listen and empathize with someone who is in pain. And that's not what you naturally do. You just want to fix it. And Jesus is just saying, I'm going to help you to have a love that abounds. Not just your natural language of love, but actually to give someone what they are really needing at the moment. Beloved, there's only one person who can love us with a perfect affection. And that is Jesus. He discerns everything about us, yet He loves us. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Actually, Jesus personifies that. Jesus is patient and He's kind. He does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus does not rejoice with evil, but He delights in the truth. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. And we either look at that call to love and just say, oh, man, I can't love like that. Or otherwise we say, no, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And actually, as I look even at Paul's life, I say, I can't even love like Paul. We run back to Jesus, who is perfect love, perfect affection. And we say, Lord, please fill me with your love so that I can love in a less irritable, more kind, less boastful way. The message of Philippians is not be like Paul. The message of Philippians is come to Jesus because you cannot be like Paul. Paul as a model will teach us, but it will crush us. But it's as we come to Jesus, who is love personified, who is joy personified, and receive the remedy for our sin sickness, for our joylessness, that we are fueled to love others and serve them. For he is our joy. Let me pray. Jesus, we come to you just so aware of our joylessness, so aware of our self-absorption, so aware of our tendency to connect our joy to these things that are fickle and frail, and when they're taken away, we get so grumpy and so down. And we thank you for the model of Paul this unsinkable buoyancy, we thank you for that. But we come to you because you are not just the model, you are the means of joy. You are the means of love. And we ask that you would fuel us to be grateful, to be in gospel partnership, to be loving, to trust you that you are at work. And we thank you that you love it when we as sinners and sufferers come to you for your remedy. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And so we receive every benefit of the cross right now. Your forgiveness, your comfort, and your joy. Amen.